Well, we're in the Lenten journey, and we are talking about this time of the year, the Lent season, is primarily about two things, about renewal and redirection. The Lenten season is where you ask the question, what's going to be different when I wake up on Easter morning? What's going to be different? What are some things God wants to reshape, reorient, change? Maybe there's some new commitments. Maybe there's just some stuff that needs to be sorted out in this Lenten season, and this is the time of year, a 40-day period. And so we've been journeying our way. We're using 1 John, the gospel, or the, the letter of 1 John, written by John, who wrote the gospel of John. So if you haven't already done so, open your Bibles up to 1 John chapter 2. Pull out your message notes or fire it up on your app there, and you can follow along. We started two weeks ago in this series called A Journey Into Life by looking, 1 John chapter 1, we talked about two declarations that were two really invitations. That God is life, that's an amazing statement, but what's even better than that is you and I can experience God as life in Jesus' name, which those gals on the video, right, Rachel and Lauren and the others are talking about how they have found life in Jesus' name. And then they've also found what? God is light, which is another wonderful declaration, right? When you're wandering around in the dark, how glorious is it that there is a God who is light? But even better than that, you can walk in his light. And so God is life and God is light. And we talked about that. And then last Sunday, you remember we looked at the picture that God gives us. It's, hey, those of, who choose to come out of dark and start walking in the light, there were four promises that we looked at last week. For those who go on that journey. And this morning, I want to talk about a really important word that comes out of John's letter here, and it's the word know. How do you know that you really know him? First John 2, we're going to look at verse 3 through 6 this morning. We know, you may want to underline the frequency of that word in this paragraph here, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Verse 6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So John's letter was written in around 85 AD. So the church is about 50 years old or so, roughly, right? 50 years after the resurrection. And notice what's beginning to creep into the church. That there are some claiming to know him who don't really know him. Have you run into this before in religious circles? Have you run into this truth that that those, there are some who claim to be living, or those who claim Jesus' name that are not living Jesus' life. There are some who claim Jesus' name that are not living Jesus' life. And only 50 years into the start of the church, there are some infiltrating Jesus' church saying, I know him, verse 4. And John is saying, let me help you figure out who really knows him and who doesn't know him because not everyone who claims the name of Jesus is living the life of Jesus. Or another way to say it is there's a whole bunch of stuff done in Jesus' name that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. There's a whole bunch of stuff done in Jesus' name that doesn't have a thing to do with Jesus. And that was happening in 85 AD. You think he'd have some things to say about 2017? Is there anything going on in Jesus' name that has long since left? 
Jesus' life? Or have you bumped into someone who's claiming, living with their mouth Jesus' name, but whose life doesn't reflect much of Jesus' life? John says, let me, let me help you with some things here. I want you to help you know that you really know him. The specific kind of group that's begun to infiltrate this early church, I put in your notes, is the Gnostics. It's called Gnosticism. And their actual name comes from what their word, the title means. The word gnosis means knowledge. And it literally means they were a group of knowers. So the Gnostics began to walk into the church of Jesus and began to look down their spiritual noses, claiming they had a corner on the religious market. So the Gnostics were saying, hey, we're the knowers. We're the spiritual elite. We've got all the letters behind our name. We're standing at the corner teaching the workshop on, I really know him. I really, really do know him. And they were kind of looking down their noses at this early church and this early group of followers who were kind of boiling it down to a really simplistic way. We just love Jesus and want to follow him and serve him. And the Gnostics were trying to throw and confuse and muddy up the waters and make it a whole lot more complicated and difficult and messy to live out the spiritual life under the banner of, we really really know him and we want to educate the rest of you on how you can know him. And John's writing his letter to help clarify Right? So when, in verse 4, when it says, hey, there's some saying, I know him, and then he, he's calling them out. The Gnostics who were standing out in the atrium with their flowing robes and their thick sack of whatever, they were the ones he was calling out in that. So when I first started hanging out around church circles, I, had, I was naive enough to think that um, if I ran into someone who'd been around church a long time, like the longer someone had been around the church, here's what I thought. The longer someone had been around the church, the more that they would just kind of be in the know when it comes to what Jesus wanted. Or the longer someone had been around the church, I could learn more from that person about living Jesus' life. And it was great when I met some of those people, but I quickly learned that wasn't, a, that wasn't an analogy. You couldn't just make that equation that just with Number of years in local church life equals wisdom and maturity in Jesus. Now, I, I don't, just call me, I guess, naive, whatever. I just thought, well, that just made sense to me. But then I met Ron. And Ron was the guy who just kind of helped me realize maybe that equation doesn't always fit. So Ron made it clear he'd been around the church like Forever. And he dressed like he'd been around the church forever. He's the guy who had like all those like pins on his lapel. I didn't even know what all the symbols were. I later learned what that dove was. I didn't know what the dove was all about. And of course the cross was there. And then he had like the denominational pin on. He just had a whole lapel full of pins. And he had the cross ring going on. And I saw his car once. He had the fish bumper sticker happening. And he carried like this Bible that was just so big. I mean, it was like this big super. I call it the double stuff Oreo size Bible. Five highlighters in the top. You know what I'm talking about here? And it had like so many programs stuffed inside the zipper pouch. It just said, Ron has been around the church like forever. And yet every time I walked in the church at Ron, I don't know what it was about me, but he just kind of had a beeline for me. And he'd just come up to me and Ron always had, he thought it was a super funny joke for me. And so he'd come up and he'd say, hey, Eric, have you heard the one about Jonah and the fisherman? And all of his jokes had to do with a Bible character. And I didn't know the Bible. And I didn't know the people in the Bible. 
And so when he got to the punchline, I absolutely had no idea what the punchline was. But then as I got to know the characters in the Bible, and I got to know the stories in the Bible, his jokes got even worse. They went beyond the category of just bad. They were just like super Christian corny. And I thought, how did Ron get so weird? Has anybody bumped into this in like church circles and church life? Like someone so fired up in Jesus. And I know Ron's heart was probably in a really good place. But here's what I noticed about Ron. People didn't like hanging around Ron. He was just kind of awkward and different and kind of in your face and a little over the top about everything and just weird. And I started to get a little nervous. I thought, man, if I like jump all in with Jesus, am I going to become like Ron? Would you let me know if I am? Permission, right? Like throw me out in the lake in there and say, hey, remember that Ron story? That's you now. So there were some wonderful folks in the local body it was at that had been walking with Jesus a long time and helped me get a picture of life in the kingdom of God. But then there were some others who were like, if that's like what life, uh, I, I don't want anything, I don't want to go that way. It can just get a little confusing. And so John writes this letter to kind of provide a, a grid of discernment. Because after I started going in church life, here I started reading the Gospels, which by the way, if you're just getting started in this whole spiritual journey, read Jesus' words in the Gospels. That's really important. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just immerse yourself there. I started immersing myself in Jesus' words in the Gospels. And I was drawn by how Jesus seemed to be the kind of person that everyone wanted to be around. Like wherever Jesus was, lots of people were gathering. They liked being around him, and they didn't always agree with what he was saying. But the way he was going about it must have had a kind of a magnetic quality to it. People enjoyed being around him. I noticed with Jesus a kind of wisdom and courage, a hope, a confidence in just why he was there and his purpose in this life. I just noticed that he was just safe with himself. It just kind of emerged from the story. I was like, I, I want to be like that. I wanted to be like this Jesus I was reading about. Now, I wasn't quite sure what to do with others who were claiming to live Jesus' name, but life was just somewhere off the rails. I, I wasn't quite sure what to do with all that, but I, stay, I wanted to stay immersed in, hey, Jesus, who you really are, I want that. And so this grid of discernment this morning is what I hope from John's letter will just be to help us sift through all the spiritual noise. Because there's not a lack of kind of religious banter going on, and there's not a lack of modern-day Gnostics who are setting up their corner on whatever, the corner of Oak and Elm, whatever, claiming to have a corner on the spiritual market and say, this is the truth. And we got to sift through who's kind of the pretenders and who's the genuine Jesus followers. So three qualities from this paragraph here, we're going to tie it to a paragraph in chapter five, three qualities to sift through the noise, pretenders from genuine followers. And the first one comes out in verse two, or, or chapter two, verse five, when it says, notice what he says, God is, God's love is truly made complete in him. You see, God's love, I counted up, there are 47 times in John's letter that he uses love. 47 times in five chapters. All kinds of forms. Love, loving, 
and it's either God's love or our love for one another. Love, 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 love. And then you couple that with 1 John 5, verse 2. So John's letter, here's what you'll notice if you've been reading John's letter. It's, a, it has a, it's not an easy one to just kind of take it theme by theme, paragraph by paragraph. He preaches, it's more like a sermon that's always, it's hitting on multiple points and he's cycling back to these points through the letter. So that's why if you're reading through, you're like, hey, didn't he just say those things? Yeah, he's just kind of saying it in a different way. So chapter five, verse two and following, he says it this way. This is how we know, same word, that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. So I wrote the first quality in our grid of discernment is that genuine Jesus followers are seized by the power of a great affection. You're seized by the power of a great affection. That love has kind of captured your heart in a way that it's hard to put words to at times. And you know if you've been really struck by love in your life, love can cause you to do some really crazy things. Like 1986 high school prom crazy things. Check this out. Yes, I had Kendra's permission. She's the one who actually selected the photo. So 1986, Newton Senior High School prom. Love can get you to do some crazy things. This is the first time I ever shopped for a tuxedo. No comments on how I did, all right, with no judgy here, all right? Just come on, embrace with me. I was like all of 140 pounds ringing wet right there, man. You think I'm thin now? Check that out. I went to a tuxedo shop. I'd never been there because we're going to prom. I got to get a tux. I didn't even know what that meant. And I had to get the color scheme to match, right? Because Kendra, I think her phrase was, oh, didn't I look nice in my little house on the prairie dress, I think is the phrase she was using for it. And I had to go to a flower shop, right? Love will get, I had to go to a flower shop and get like a real flowers called a corsage. I didn't even know there were different types of corsages in 1986 when I went to the flower shop. But I was so thankful for the woman behind the counter who said, I'll take care of you, Eric. Don't worry about it. I got you. Just tell me the colors. We'll get this taken care of. And love will get you to do some crazy things like the couple of days beforehand, the vehicle. I said, Dad, I want to borrow like our best car. And I washed it like three times. And I vacuumed it out. And I even scrubbed armor all on the side of the tires. I mean, it was looking tight now. I'm just looking good. And then the day of the prom, I know I took at least two showers. Might have been more. Because love, right, just going to get you to do some crazy, crazy things. And you know, the same applies in our relationship with God. Do you know at some point... In a genuine walk with Jesus, here's the transition that's going to happen. You go from I know him to I really, really do love him. I love him. Now, knowing is definitely a prerequisite for the loving. It's very difficult to love something you don't know. And if you're just getting early on in the journey, you're beginning with just a knowing, knowing who Jesus is and knowing what he's like and the life that he lived and the, the life that he offers. You go from kind of knowing about it and then you just say, your heart becomes seized by the power of a great affection. 
It's what the old Russian proverb used to say. Here's what an old Russian proverb I came across. It says, those who have been struck with the disease of Jesus will never be cured. That's what an old Russian proverb said. Those who've been struck with the disease of Jesus will never be cured. And so here, here's the first marker on, on our grid, right? There's this, when you're sifting through all the religious noise and you're trying to figure out who really knows him, there's this journey in the heart where there's this something that comes alive inside of you which says, yes, I, I, I know him, but I love him. My heart has been seized with the power of a great affection, and his love is motivating me to do some things that in the eyes of the world may seem quite crazy. If you love him, you will be led down the path of doing some perhaps crazy things in his name that others around you might look at and say, I don't understand this, but your heart has been seized by the power of something beyond you. Something has come alive inside. You've gotten to know the Jesus of the New Testament, the Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the dead. You got to know him. And then you went from knowing him, you went, I love him. You get to the point where the apostle Paul said, Christ is my life. I remember it was a few years back, we were looking for a youth pastor and doing an interview sequence around and a friend of a friend had sent this one like candidate who he was like, you know, Peyton Manning quarterback type candidate. You know, he came with all the pedigree. He had all the he had the seminary degree, Bible college. He had the experience at all the happening names and leaders around. I mean, his resume on paper was off the charts. And this guy's like, you gotta find a way to get some FaceTime with him, Eric. So while he was in town interviewing with some other places, he, uh, he, on his way to the airport, he stopped by here. And we spent like a half an hour together just trying to get to know and see if there was anything there. And I kind of began the interview, maybe disarmed him a little bit, but I was just really interested beyond all the stuff on paper. I wanted to start this with this question, though not this directly, but here's what I was fishing for. Do you love him? Do you really love Jesus? Is he your life? Has your heart been seized by the power of a great affection? Have you come to know him in such a way that he's just changing things inside of you? And now you're propelled to do some ministry in his name out of this reservoir of a stream of living water that's flowing in your heart. That's what I was after. For the first 20 minutes, I tried in every way, shape, and form to get at that reality. And what became clear to me was, I'm not sure. There's a whole bunch of stuff being done in his name on this sheet, right? You with me? I'm looking for the life. Where's that, where's that stream of living water? Where's that heart that's been seized? Where's that, I'm looking in the eye and say, I love him, Christ is my life. And so it didn't take me long to just let that one pass and go ahead and head to the airport and go off onto the next and called my friend and said, hey, you know, out of love and concern, I said, hey, I think you should have a conversation with this young man because I couldn't get at it, but someone needs to get at it. Because there's a difference between doing stuff in Jesus' name, which is what's easier to talk about, and then what are we talking about? Being with him. 
The doing matters. It's got to flow out of the being, though. Because if you're doing without being, you're a ticking time bomb just waiting for implode. You're just waiting for the time when it's burnout and a big old mess. And Right? There's this being with. There's the wells have got to go down deep. And then out of that being with him, there's this doing things for him. And I hope that's always the grid you'll use around here for the spiritual leaders, be that life group leaders, elders, pastors, whoever around here, that it's always about the being with. And I hope the grid that you always use to evaluate how we're doing in spiritual leadership, say, hey, are these people's lives, have you been seized by a power of a great affection? Do they love Jesus? Do they love him? Are they just talking about knowing him? It's not incredibly difficult to just grab the Bible and start just talking about a bunch of spiritual knowledge and go off and get a degree and talk about knowing and knowing and knowing. The harder work is what? Press it from knowing to falling in love with him. And have your heart captured. Get struck with a disease that you cannot be cured from. That's genuine. There's your first filter trying to navigate all the noise. And the second one flows right with it. I wrote in my notes, the second filter I see coming out from John here is there's this hunger. Genuine Jesus followers are hungry to learn about God's ways. See, once you've been struck by this disease that you can't be cured from, once your heart has been seized by the power of a great affection, there's gonna be this growing desire inside of you to want to learn about God's ways. Because you don't just come into this relationship and know all of his expectations. So those of you, again, early on in the journey, be patient with yourself. Take a deep breath. This is a long obedience in one direction. It's gonna take some time. And here's what you're finding. Some of the ways you're going about life, not quite how Jesus would want you to go about life. And you're learning about that gap. That's normal. And a genuine Jesus follower is this, you want to, like there's a desire inside of you to say, God, how do I live my life in a way that honors you? You're the God who gave me life. You sent the Savior to give me grace. You sent the Holy Spirit to fill me. You give me great instructions with this word. It seems like, well, the Bible word for it would be, it's foolish to just turn my back on all of that and say, I'm going to do this on my own. That would be foolish. Wisdom would be, I want to learn God's ways. I want to know what he has to say. I want some guidance and instruction. How do I love my spouse well? How do I raise my kids? How do I handle my work? What does he want me to do with my money? What about my gifts and talents and how do I steward it for his purposes? How do I live well, but some of you even caring for aging parents, how do I die well? Jesus, he's the one, right? When your heart's seized by the power of a great affection, there's a hunger inside of you because hunger is a sign of life. Dead things are not hungry. There's playing pastor obvious for you for a minute. Huh? Dead things are not hungry. If you're alive, if your heart's been seized, what comes up inside of you? There's a hunger. There's a desire. There's an appetite to get to know him and walk with him and love him and serve him and do your everyday life with him. There's a hunger for that. And that helps us sift through some of the noise. So whose heart's been seized? Who's got an obvious appetite coming from within them that says, I want to know him and learn to love him and walk with him and serve him and honor him? 
This is why I, the longer I'm around church circles, the longer I'm in this Christian life, the more I realize I gotta get around people who are on the front end of this relationship. I gotta get around people who are just coming to taste Jesus' love and grace. Like I gotta get around the Rachels and the Laurens and some of those stories up there, right? Hang out around the baptismal tank and listen to their stories and look into their eyes. What happens when you get around someone who's just tasting Jesus' grace for the first time? What do you see sparked inside of there? What you see is a heart that's beginning to be seized by something that, that maybe used to seize yours. Or maybe there's a hunger you see sparked inside of them. Recently, I was helping a young man who was just kind of taking some new steps spiritually, and I gave him an assignment to read something. And I followed up a couple of days later just as another comment, and he replied back, said, hey, by the way, I read the whole book. It was less than 48 hours. Now, this is an assignment that I had usually been working with other people, and it takes like three, four months for him to get through. This young man, in less than 48 hours, what was coming out of that? Hunger. Hungry. I got to get around that. So if you're in a spot right now in your walk or you're like, man, you remember, you've got some memories, you've got some things kind of stirring within you like you want more of that, here's like a real practical thing you can do. Just start hanging out around people who are on the front end of this relationship with Jesus, who are just putting a toe in the water and are just starting to realize his grace is amazing. His love is overwhelming. His mercies are new every morning. He's faithful. And you start tasting that, get around someone who's reading the Bible for the first time. It's so refreshing. It's so good. I had a young man say to me years ago, he just walked up to me, he said, Eric, I just read the book of Acts. He said, that book is amazing. Have you read that thing? I was like, yeah, bro, that is really good. I had to read it again. He goes, that's unbelievable what I read in there. You're right. But I can just flip through Acts because sometimes the more familiar the terrain becomes, there's just a casualness that kind of breathes into the whole thing. Has anybody figured, felt that before where you just kind of feel a drift towards, you just kind of lose that original what? Heart being seized and love kind of propelling you to do crazy things you've been struck with this disease though you can't be cured from, it will spawn its way into a hunger, a hunger that will search for God's ways. And then thirdly, there's a commitment that flows out of all this to wholehearted obedience. We don't have to go far in John's letter to figure out he's got a lot to say about obeying, right? I just put in my notes, loving God equals obeying God in John's eyes. Loving God equals obeying God. That's what he's... Look at 2, 3, obey his commands. Chapter 2, verse 4, do what he commands. 2, verse 5, obey his word. 2, verse 6, walk as Jesus did. And then if you flip over to chapter 5 and you look at verses 2 and 3, you'll find phrases like carrying out his commands. And then verse 3, to obey his commands. And all through this letter, there's this call to obedience. And it's an obedience that's beyond the letter of the law stuff. Stay with me here. There's an obedience to the spirit of the law is what he's after. The word there he's using is a careful and watchful observance. So here's what John's getting at. Saying, hey, you want to sift through genuine followers from pretenders. First look for something, a heart seized by this power of a great affection. A life that's been struck with the disease of Jesus and they can't be cured. And then look for a hunger, some type of appetite that's spawning within them, that they're hungry to learn about God and his ways. And then there's this, there's this reality that when God's ways collide with your ways, 
Here's what a genuine follower does. It doesn't mean it's not a wrestling match. God's ways are going to collide with your ways. By the way, if that's not happening, there's a sign that maybe some other stuff's off the rails because this should be happening. God's ways colliding with our ways. And when that collision happens, here's what a genuine follower of Jesus does. They choose this posture. They join Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we can, through tears, Jesus shed tears to the level of with blood. And he said, Father, is there any other way? Some of you living right here in this collision and go, Father, is there any other way? It's Jesus. Is there any other way? If Jesus asked that, how many times are we going to ask that? Is there any other way? Yet, what does he come to? Yet, not my will, but yours be done. So when this collision happens between God's ways and your ways, you're like, Lord, this is how I've been living my life or I want to live my life or this is how I've been going about my marriage, my parenting, my finances, my work. This is how I've been living my one and only life. And then my heart is getting awakened with this great affection and I'm because it's hungry to learn about his ways. And then there's a collision that's coming. The collision comes between the more you learn about God and Christ and his ways and what he wants. It's like colliding with the life and then here's how you know a genuine follower. There's this point where you just, sometimes it's got to be a prying it open, but you release. And you say, Lord, I surrender. Even if I don't understand, I choose obedience. A careful and watchful observance with the way you've said I should live my life. Because you're the Lord, you're the king. And I'm learning how to live in submission to that lordship, so this is the posture. Which, by the way, a little red flag ought to be if you're searching for chapter and verse to rationalize your own behavior. You've missed the, you're going after the letter of the law thing, and John's saying, hey, 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 I'm looking for obedience to the spirit of the law. How about the fact that you're searching chapter and verse to rationalize your behavior? That's what John would want to talk about. Forget about what chapter and verse you're looking for. I want to talk about why you're on that search. Because when the collision comes, why are you searching to rationalize? Why not just this? Surrender. And trust. And I found a quote that I thought you might find helpful, so I put it in your notes. Kevin DeYoung. It's a pastor up in Michigan. He writes this. Holiness which is kind of a Bible word for a commitment to obedience, is more than middle-class family values. It's all too easy to turn the fight of faith into sanctification by checklist. Now, sanctification is just a big word for spiritual growth, so I'll read that sentence again. It's all too easy to turn the fight of faith into spiritual growth by checklist. Take care of a few bad habits, develop a couple of good ones, and you're set. But a moral checklist doesn't take into consideration the idols of the heart's. So you end up feeling successful at spiritual growth. Hear this now. Because you stayed away from drugs, lost weight, served at the soup kitchen, and renounced styrofoam. But you've ignored gentleness, humility, joy, and sexual purity. God has not really gotten your heart. Mere rule keeping is not the answer because holiness cannot be reduced to a little ethical refurbishment. This is what John's, he's trying to sift this. He's like, hey, there's a whole bunch of folks trying to give you a picture of the Christian life that's just inaccurate. And if that was happening in 85 AD, I wonder what's happening in 2017. What I hear John saying is, 
Some people view the Christian life like this. You come to Jesus and you think, oh, whoa, whoa, now. If I take a step towards Jesus, he's got 30 pounds worth of sandbag rules to throw on my shoulders. If I take a step towards Jesus, he's going to want me to start, watch it now, hanging out in church. Uh Uh-oh. And then, you know what? He's going to want me to start reading this It's a pretty thick book, and have you checked out that book lately? There's a lot going on in there. A lot of people, dates, times, places, not the easiest book to pick up and read. You mean I gotta start reading the Bible? You mean I might have to show up at a prayer meeting? Wait a minute, and then I hear about serving, and I hear about serving like in the toddler nursery. I'm serving where, and and I'm just, I, I took a step towards Jesus. I'm like, wait, wait. And then, and then there's that Sunday where the pastor, he talked about, oh no, giving and money and tithing. And then he said, tithe on the gross. Oh my gosh. <laughs> tithe on the gross versus the net. It's just over. What in the world? If I was honest, it's one of the barriers I had when I first began my journey. Because I started to track the steps of some some folks who maybe their Christian life, their Christian life seemed to be more like this. It's like they just kind of, you know, they live with that 30-pound sandbag of burden in Jesus' name. This is kind of the image of you know, joy in Jesus. And I'd get around him and I'd go, I'm not sure I'm interested in that. In that. But then, but then I opened up the Gospels and I started to track Jesus' life. And then I started to meet some genuine followers. And here's what I found. The whole equation's all messed up. The people who are, who are living like, thinking this is Jesus' life, thinking this is the Christian life right here. If this is your image of the Christian life, here's what I want to help correct this morning. This is the image of the Christian life. This is a picture of me trying to do my life without Jesus right here. This is run the tape out Simpson as a young man going, okay, I'm going to try to build a family without Jesus. I'm going to try to raise my kids without, without Jesus. I'm going to try to be a good husband without Jesus. I'm going to handle the, my workplace without Jesus and handle finance without Jesus, handle aging parents without Jesus, handle my own sin, oh boy, without Jesus. Are you kidding me? This is, this is what I began to understand. Jesus saying, hey, this is your picture right here of trying to do life without me. And then I learned, right, when Jesus said, you come to me, right, and you learn how to live for me. And what does he say? You take my yoke upon you, and what? My yoke is easy, and what? Finish it. My burden is light. I started to say, hey, what Jesus is offering, hey, Simpson, you come to me, I'll, I'll help you live. I'll teach you how to live. And guess what life in Jesus is? You start having a little... You stand up a little straighter. You start walking a little lighter because Jesus offers freedom. 
There's freedom in his name. There's, a, there's 30 pounds of other stuff when you're trying to manage life and sin and self in your own name. Maybe way more than 30 pounds. We try to, but in Jesus' name, right? A genuine Jesus follower has what? Doesn't mean we don't go through stuff. Doesn't mean life isn't hard. But what is there? There's a freedom. Your heart's been seized by a power of a great affection. You've been struck with a disease called Jesus. And there's a love inside of you that's causing you to do some holy, crazy things. And there's a hunger inside of you that nothing in this world can satisfy. That you got an appetite that you know only he is big enough and strong enough and deep enough and eternal enough to satisfy that appetite that's driving deep inside of you. And of course then, our willingness to walk in his ways and obey his commands isn't strapping the 30-pound bag on. It's like, he's just right about everything. Jesus is just right. It's just a better way to live. It's the best way to live. Like when I go to Jesus, I say, Jesus, uh, teach me how to be a husband. There's no one better than him. He's the most competent marriage counselor out there. He's the best. And some of you in the throes are raising teenagers, and if that doesn't drive you to your knees, I don't know what's going to. And you don't know what to do sometimes with kids and where the boundaries are and when to step in and when to pull back and all the. Do you know Jesus is the best parenting guide ever? There's no one better. And some of you are going through all kinds of crossroads with career and trying to understand what you're supposed to do with your one and only life and feeling like injustices in the workplace and how to handle difficulties and that. No one better with Jesus. He's the best guide. There's no one better to guide your life than him. He's really good at it. Way better than I am. I try to guide my life, let Jesus guide my life. He's way better every time. That's where the freedom comes. You stand up straighter. You walk a little freer. That's gospel. That's genuine followers. And that's the invitation that John says is available to anyone at any time. And the first step is what? You got to want it. Do you want it? Because you live toward what you want. Your desires, more than anything else, are gonna shape the kind of person you become. And John says, there is a life and a light available to you, an eternal kind of life, a life that's sustained by God, a life where your heart gets seized with the power of a great affection, a hunger that this world can't satisfy, and an obedience that flows out of this unbelievable fountain of love and grace and joy. Of course you want your life to honor him. Why would you not, like a child growing up and wanting the appearance approval and wanting to live in honor, to honor mom and dad's name? That's what we do as his followers, and that helps us sift through all this spiritual noise out there. Because there's gonna be a whole bunch of things done in Jesus' name that don't have anything to do with Jesus. And you're gonna bump up against someone who's living name, claiming to live Jesus' name, but isn't living Jesus' life. And what do you do with all that? Parents, I can't think of a better grid as a parenting assignment for us. We gotta help our kids. We gotta help them with discerning all this spiritual noise. How are they gonna go off and navigate What's genuine and what's not? This is where we, our own lives have to model it and then we have to help them build into it with a kind of grid like this. So your assignment this week is as follows. Same thing we've been doing. How's the two minutes of silence and stillness going? That's what we're doing this Lenten season. So every day the goal is two minutes 
stillness, silence, preferably not while you're going 70 miles an hour on 465. That's not really the definition of stillness, but, or when you're up 30,000 feet flying wherever, you know, sometimes that's the closest thing some of you have to stillness, but you know what I'm getting at. Just, can you be still, be quiet, be alone two minutes every day, and then the Lenten readings have been pushed out to you via the app. If you're not getting those, you can just download the app and the push notifications will come every day on that and the website has those as well. So just follow the Lenten readings. If you can't tackle all of them, maybe just do the New Testament only for this Lenten season. And then you're in your Lent groups, right? Some kind of text group, two or three other people you're linked up with and just kind of sharing experiences. Here's the question I want you to ask this week. When you look at that grid of discernment, okay? Here's the question. Where's the contact point of obedience in your life this week? Where do you sense Jesus saying to you right now, take a step with me here? And talk about that as your group. Just take a step with me here. Trust me, obey me, take a step with me here and see what he does. All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for John's letter. Thank you for the image that you give us about what it means to genuinely know you and follow you. Thank you for the hearts in this congregation that have so been obviously seized by the power of a great affection. Thank you for the hunger that flows out of so many family units here a hunger for you and to learn your ways. And thank you for an obedience that springs from that fountain of love and grace. We want our lives to honor you, Lord. We wanna represent you well. We wanna be the kind of body that when people get around, they say, hey, there's a group of people not just living, uh, not just speaking Jesus' name, but who are living Jesus' life. Help us do that authentically, genuinely, transparently, You're an amazing God. So thank you for this invitation that you, can, you say to us, come and live your life with me. And we say yes, yes, Jesus, in your name, amen.